Good evening to you all. Tonight's talk is going to be on wise effort. Wise effort. There seems to be an emerging theme in a number of the talks that you've heard. Joseph gave a whole talk on virya, the arousing of energy um, dedicated to a particular end. Tonight I wanted to talk about wise effort from the perspective of describing how it's applied, what we're using this effort to do, and to talk about some of the personal agendas or motivations that we may bring to practice that can kind of complexify the simplicity of the task that we're actually uh, needing to do. So first to talk about wise effort and how it fits into the Buddha's Eightfold Path. The Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, of course, are really the core teachings of the Buddha, the high-level summary of how practice uh, should be made, the line of effort that should be made. And we find that wise effort or right effort is actually the step number six on the Eightfold Path. And after wise effort, we find wise mindfulness and wise concentration as the seventh and eighth steps of the path. And the three steps, six, seven, and eight, are bound together in what's called the concentration set of the path. So if we remember that wisdom is what liberates us from delusion, which causes suffering which is one way to to state the Four Noble Truths, we can see how the step six, step seven, step eight of, of the Eightfold Path work together. Because in order for there to be sustained capacity for the kind of deep seeing, the kind of concentration that really allows us to see and then see through our delusions, to actually come into contact with Uh, the kind of reality that purifies the mind, there needs to be wise mindfulness. And in order for there to be wise mindfulness, there needs to be wise effort. Because it's through wise effort that mindfulness comes about. So there's an understanding that There's a kind of effort, a kind of energy that needs to be applied to do four things. And step number six of the Eightfold Path, talking about wise effort, really delineates quite specifically what that effort is. So the first of what are called the four great endeavors is to prevent the arising of unwholesome states to prevent the arising of unwholesome states. So if we're going to put that into a slogan, we could say that's, don't get yourself in trouble. Close the door on the unwholesome states. And when we refer to unwholesome states, we're basically talking about defilements of mind, states of greed or craving, uh, aversion, and delusion, and the many variations of similar states that flow from those. So all of these are understood to be states of suffering. So these, the unarisen, unwholesome states, we're trying to close the door on. So if you're going to look at some of the main ways that we close the door on those kinds of states, you'd say, well, sila. Taking the the precepts and, and keeping them. We could say sense restraint. Knowing what's going on at the the six sense doors and in general not letting the mind just kind of roam about uh, in unconsciousness doing whatever it wants to do. And of course in, in order to really guard the sense doors and to close the door on these unarisen unwholesome states there would need to be strong and continuous mindfulness. So that's a very high bar. 
strong and continuous mindfulness. Okay, so if what happens then if unwholesome states come up anyway? So the second of the great endeavors is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. So abandon them. So this is the practice territory that you would call practicing with the hindrances. And of course, as you may have noticed, there's a lot of practice that actually goes on in that zone. So you could say the slogan here is don't cling to suffering when it arises. And there there's there have been a number of references to the hindrances and you'll hear about them all the way through the retreat because they are really the main obstacles to our uh, our ability to see things as things are. They're a kind of obscuration that comes up in the, in the mind when mindfulness either breaks down or is absent or is relatively weak. So they creep in when there's unwise attention or a lack of attention to immediate experience. So when these states are there, it makes it difficult or impossible for the mind to really recognize its immediate experience with mindfulness and to know it moment to moment. And of course, in losing wise mindfulness, we also lose the basis for wise concentration to arise. So if we want to restore the liberating viewpoint, then we need to restore mindfulness. And that's always the main strategy. So when clear seeing is uh, reestablished and maintained, then concentration arises all on its own. And then with concentration, our knowing of reality becomes more continuous. It becomes, uh, reality is seen more clearly and in greater depth. And in a certain kind of way, the jigsaw puzzle of our understanding starts to fill in and we, we start to get what Bonnie called in her talk, the arising of intuitive understanding or intuitive wisdom based on the many data points that mindfulness has collected when it's sustained. But if the hindrances are there, we have to figure out a way to deal with them. So just to review what they are, you've had an experiential review of them, uh, I'm sure, at this point. But, you know, there's sense, desire, or craving. There's ill will, aversion. There's uh, sloth and torpor, also called dullness and drowsiness. And then there's restlessness and worry, which sometimes takes the form of anxiety and doubt. So when those states are there, i.e. these unwholesome states are there, then we need to figure out a way to work with them in the interest of mitigating them and having supporting their passing away. So the first task is always to restore mindfulness. And there are a lot of techniques to work with the hindrances. Different techniques have different specific remedies. And you've probably had conversations with your teachers about particular remedies for what are coming up for you. Sometimes the the hindrances arise and they're kind of like a clipper system that the Weather Channel talks about. You know, they can be intense, but they move through rather quickly. Sometimes they hang around. Sometimes we're able to redirect the mind to something wholesome and just kind of let go of a hindrance and leave it behind. But often more than that is required and they hang around long enough and they're strong enough that really what, the, what we need to do in relationship to, to them is do what's called investigate them. Investigate them. And that whole anac- uh, uh, anacronym of RAIN, you know, recognize, uh, identify, recognize, accept, uh, investigate, 
and uh, non-identification is one framework that you can use to do that investigation. But basically, the Buddha talks about the importance of both knowing the state of mind that's present, when he talks about practicing in the third foundation of mindfulness, and uh, having the capacity to meet it with mindfulness to actually investigate states. Investigation of states. It's a really interesting topic that's, that's worth a full talk. So when you connect skillfully with unwholesome states, then they weaken and they decrease. And when we develop the skill in this area, and that skill becomes habitual and uh, more easily summoned, then we actually transform the soil of the mind, you might say, in a way that makes it more difficult for these deluded seeds of mind to actually arise and maintain themselves. And then there's the, the whole other side of these cultivations of the wholesome, which comes into play in what are called the third and fourth of the great endeavors. And the third of the great endeavors is to arouse wholesome states that haven't yet arisen. So you could say wise attention makes wholesome seeds sprout. So if you're going to say, well, how, how do we do that in practice? We could start at the beginning and think about what our intention is in practice. You know, to the extent we can rest our intention on something that's clearly wholesome, that's an initial step in arousing wholesome states that have not yet arisen. If you look at this endeavor with, in terms of what we're doing here on retreat, you could consider that listening to and trying to put into play the meditation instructions to establish and direct mindfulness is part of arousing wholesome states because the meditation instructions as they're offered are designed to basically coach your mind into a mindful relationship with its immediate experience. The way they're, they're framed, the language that is used, the attitude of mind that is encouraged in that language, it's all designed to help the mind be able to identify experientially what mindfulness is and then carry that mindfulness in its connection with the full range of things that can arise, starting most usually with the first foundation of mindfulness. So all those instructions are a coaching to you to what wise attention is. So when mindfulness is established, then that always wholesome state is an important support to other wholesome states also arising. And of course, one of the main ways that the meditative uh, progression itself is sometimes described is in a teaching called the seven factors of awakening, which arise in the mind stream in, in sequence. That's a whole other talk. But the basic thing to know is mindfulness invites many other wholesome things. So the last of the four great endeavors that are part of wise effort is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. So you could say the slogan would be wise attention enriches the soil. So part of this is to maintain and perfect wholesome states that are already there. The most important piece at the beginning is to recognize their presence. Recognize their presence. So those of you who work with me 
may have had the experience of me asking you, tell me about the wholesome states that you've noticed. And one of the things that I've, I've, uh, I'm struck by sometimes is that usually when I ask people that question, they kind of look at me blankly, which is a very interesting thing. So, you know, sometimes I'll kind of feed you some ideas about what might be there. <laughs> I'll say, mindfulness. Mindfulness. You got any mindful <laughs> mindfulness going on? <laughs> a little bit here and there, a little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of wholesome. Okay, that's always wholesome. You get the mindfulness. You got the wholesome. And of course, in order to establish mindfulness, there's a lot of other wholesome things that you usually have to be doing too. Right? There usually has to be some renunciation, you know, some letting go of, uh, you know, chasing around things that are pleasant. There has to be some resolve to to keep to to the schedule and to keep coming back. There's probably some patience going on there. You know, there you're doing meta in the afternoon at least once a week, so that's a pretty wholesome one. <laughs> and so there are a lot of them, but it's a very interesting thing to see that the recognition of, of wholesome states in some ways is one of the harder parts of practice. And that's a whole other talk too. But the main thing to know is when you connect mindfully with wholesome states, you you're actually helping support their presence and creating circumstances or causes and conditions that can actually strengthen them. So over time, the recognition of the states will increase them in frequency and in strength within the mind stream. So it's an important thing as well as a pleasant thing to recognize wholesome experiences that you might have. So those are the four great endeavors that are part of wise effort. And it, as you see, there's kind of a division in it. The first part is about trying to work skillfully with and crowd out the unwholesome states. And the second part is about wholesome states, recognizing them and increasing them in the mind stream. And the same basic practice of mindfulness has the capacity to accomplish both of those t- those things. Both the weakening of the unwholesome and the strengthening of the wholesome. So that's the traditional definition of how effort is, um, is carried forward in relationship to those things. Now, I'd like to talk about another thing that is really interesting to me, which is our very human tendency to carry into retreat and to carry into practice a whole other set of tasks or a whole other set of agendas that we wish to accomplish in practice. So you you could call these our uh, idiosyncratic, Uh, probably inevitable uh, human contributions to the four great efforts. So, now we start the journey, we start the journey of practice with our motives at least somewhat mixed because our mind streams are a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome states Our mind streams are a mixture of wisdom and delusion. Can we agree upon this? Okay. So that means that we undertake our journey and our our practice path with a lot of different intentions in play, both conscious and unconscious. So there may be a picture that we have of where we want to go and what we want to accomplish in our time here, And maybe there's an idea that we want to use the retreat to accomplish this particular thing or mix of things. 
So I'm going to give you some examples of, the, of these things, these motivations and agendas that we all often carry with us, whether it's for a sitting or for a whole retreat or for the whole practice path. So first thing would be uh, to get rid of or to eliminate a particular emotion or emotional pattern i.e. to get fixed. Okay. So another one is to make ourselves different into some kind of preferred version in some essential manner to get improved or perfected. And sometimes this can, you know, be be quite personal. I have a friend who, who told me that who's very extroverted, who told me that she, she went on retreat because she wanted to become an introvert. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, okay. <laughs> you, you don't actually become an introvert here, but you have to act like you're one, right? <laughs> so another example of this kind of thing is Uh, to figure out something about myself, my life, or a relationship. So, you know, like, what should I do with my my career? You know, where is my life going to go? Or how about my relationship with my daughter? You know, what can I, what can I do about that? How can I, how can I make that better? Or, you know, why am I, um, you know, so messed up? You know, what, what caused it in, the, in my childhood? Let me go back and see if I can figure that out. So another one is to attain a particular kind of spiritual experience we've heard or read about. So there's tons and tons of Dharma out there now, right? So... There's lots and lots of stuff in, in books, you know. You you may desire to become one with the universe and, you know, be like Ramana Maharshi or somebody like that. Um, another one is to prove something to ourselves or someone else, Right? to prove something to ourselves or someone else. I'm going to show them, them. Or, you know, I've had a hard time with um, sitting still and really sticking to something. And, you know, I dropped out of school and I'm going to go and I'm going to, right, I'm going to, okay. All right. Another one is to experience pleasantness, bliss, or concentration, and maybe a psychic experience. Okay, because this is all out there in the, in the materials, right? You know, you might hear like there's certain kinds of states, and, you know, maybe that kind of state could happen, and maybe that would be good, and maybe you could read minds, or, oh, that would be so depressing, wouldn't it? Maybe... <laughs> Having watched your own for the <laughs> last two and a half weeks, maybe you could read minds. And okay, maybe walking through walls that might be a little more fun. But so another one that can that can come up too is like to impress the the teacher or get recognized as special. You know, this is a very natural human thing. You know, to want to be seen and valued in some sort of way. You know, to be. An exceptional student is, you know, a not unusual thing to, to have come up. So that, that if we were going to think about uh, Bonnie's talk on mana and comparing mind, we would have to say that that was uh, kind of an example of that, being and becoming. And then there's another version, which is to have my ego or self-sense or personality disappear. Right? Which would be an example of, you know, the desire for non-existence, right? 
is very interesting sometimes when you hear not self-talks, what the mind can do with that. You know, for some people that can bring up uh, fear, for some people it can bring up interest, for some people it can bring up, I'm on board with that. (laughs) I would rather not exist. How can I find a way to not exist and kind of like just disappear? Uh, Another one is to experience something from a previous retreat or sitting again. Maybe you had a particular retreat where things were clear and your heart was filled with compassion and things were really wonderful and came back into retreat with the intention that you're going to kind of pick up where you left off and it was only going to improve from there. Or maybe you've had a hard hard experience and so the intention and the uh, agenda coming into retreat is more like to not experience something from a previous retreat. Something that might have been really hard and uh, trying and difficult to be with. Oh no, I remember that. I remember how restless I was that last time. Well, this time it's, I'm not going to do that. This time I'm going to really shoot for the calm. I'm really going to. Or you know, there can be a kind of organic, overarching agenda to be a, a good yogi, a good yogi, or maybe a, a great yogi would be better, but to fit some kind of archetype that we think would be um, excellent to conform to. So I don't know, do any of those sound like they might have any resonance? Okay, so this is our natural human minds, right? <laughs> this is, this is our, our, uh, our minds. We're just trying to figure out how to be happy. We're trying to figure out how to get what we th- think we need out of situations and opportunities, including practice opportunities. So were we to turn the practice towards these particular things that I called idiosyncratic additions to the four great efforts. So if we don't identify or acknowledge these particular things that are in the mix and attempt to practice in a way that we would directly fulfill these goals, then the following tends to happen. Uh, First, we're looking for a particular result related to that goal. Have I figured out what went wrong in childhood yet? No, I've got to keep digging around. So with this particular goal, we would try to control what arises and doesn't arise. Oh, now I'm having a lot of energy in the body. You know, it's really making me restless. It's getting in the way of figuring out what went wrong in my childhood. (laughs) Right? So one of the most important things that happens too is we don't really bring a fresh mind to the instructions. So we hear part of the instructions or or we take bits and pieces from the instructions and then we try to apply them with a certain end in mind or we disregard the instructions completely or, or we sort of try to follow them with our other goal in mind. Anybody noticed any tendency to do that? Hmm, let's see, they said, okay, get mindfulness and I'll get some mindfulness and then I'll do this or do that. So then we, we're always reviewing what's going on here too and doing a kind of grading. Is what we want to happen happening? Like have I f- figured out my relationship with my daughter yet? So, of course, since this is, tends to be goal-directed, then we have the experience of the ego kind of inflating and deflating in relationship to whether or not we've made any progress in this particular kind of way. It also makes it hard to actually recognize predominant experience and being it, be in mindful connection with it, which is 
the overall general practice instruction. So this whole thing kind of opens the door to a lot of a lot of hindrances. So there's struggle, there's fatigue, and then from that the hindrances arise. And then with the failure to control, often there's a kind of mad or sad thing that happens, and self-judgment and doubt and fatigue and lots and lots of hindrances. So there are a number of problems if we don't see these personal agendas, but instead invest in them and proceed from them as a starting point and a standard that we use to measure how we're doing. And one of the big issues overall with this is we're trying to squeeze our spiritual practice into a context that's much too small, much too closed-ended, and much too specific and goal-oriented. So if if we're we're thinking about what's actually going on in the minds moving from... (coughs) the kind of delusion that causes suffering. You, you can see that even though we have a general pointing in the teachings of the direction of how the mind would gain wisdom and how um, understanding would unfold, we don't really know moment by moment what that's going to look like. We're asked to take on the task of attending in the immediate to what is right there, right now, happening right now, without selective bias. So we don't know how the mind is going to open. We don't know what we're going to experience. We don't have a standard for judging what's right or wrong in our practice as it opens. There are many peaks and valleys, many places where practice can actually seem like retrograde motion. We don't know what it's like to have an awakened mind before we have one. So there's a kind of starting from a wrong base and a way in which these, these side uh, agendas, when they become predominant, bring an overlay to the whole thing. Because instead of proceeding simply, we're keeping our usual approach going at the same time. We're you know, simply trying to be aware. So this is really complex. It's a major complexification. And then with the complexification, we also have a split focus because part of our mind is engaged with other things other than what is immediately in front of us, spontaneously arising. So if we're too busy trying to make something specific happen, we're not really open to what is happening. And since we don't actually have the ability to implement our preferences, generally speaking, to make happen what we want to in practice in the immediate sense, there's a high (laughs) failure rate. So you could say, you know, rigidity causes suffering because it resists what's actually happening, which is another way of saying it actually resists the truth. So our, our job or our task as yogis is to actually harmonize with the truth and not to argue with it. So things arise and pass away because of their nature and because of causes and conditions and not our own wishes. Now having said all the downsides of practicing with a mix of those other things in the field where the mind is really grabbing a hold of those other agendas and practicing from them, we must acknowledge, you know, we're just humans, we just don't want to suffer. We don't want to suffer generically, and we don't want to suffer specifically, and we don't want to suffer in the very personal ways that we do suffer. So of course we don't want to suffer, 
Of course we want things to be better. So there's not a, a valued judgment on not wanting to suffer. Of course we don't want to suffer. <coughs> so is there a way to <coughs> practice that acknowledges these things but doesn't get entangled in them, doesn't get overly com- complexified by their presence? So the answer is, well, yeah, if there's integrity of effort, integrity of effort. So I'll define that from my perspective anyway. So I would say that's effort that's integrated and congruent. So there's one effort being made. And this really calls for sincerity and commitment and resolve. So the question is, well, resolve to do what? So the resolve is to regard these other goals with wise attention when they're present, when they're activated, when they're arising all on their own. So, you know, what would that look like? Well, it would mean that you would be attending to the these when they're present in the mind stream as a foreground experience in a way that's process-focused and not outcome-insistent. Okay, process-focused, not outcome-insistent. So here's some integrated ways to practice with these. So one is to recognize them when they're present and to drop them completely. Set them to the side and let them go. Ooh, check out the feeling of, of that, the thought of doing that. If you have one, of, one or more of these. Just to kind of let them go, move them to the side, let them go. Okay, if the mind doesn't like that, or even if it does, it's good to have more than one strategy. You could take the uh, direction of reframing the goals to be aligned with the main thing that you're doing here and non-interfering. So this would be reframing these motivations or desires in a way that's more skillful so they can actually be stepping stones to the, in the o- your overall process instead of obstacles. So a way to, another way to put it is revise them to be skillful and aligned with the main task that you've undertaken in, in being here. So let me go back through the list and give you some alternative versions of how you could, could hold these things. So the first one I suggested to eliminate a particular emotion or emotional pattern, i.e. to get fixed, you could reframe that as to learn to meet difficult emotions with compassion and courage. So the one that was to make oneself different in some essential manner to get improved or perfected, you could reframe as something like to support my full potential by developing new strength. To figure out something about my life, my self, or a relationship, you could reframe to something like to increase clarity, wisdom, and compassion. To attain a particular kind of spiritual experience we've heard or read about, you could reframe to to recognize new growth and insight without attachment. To prove something to ourselves or someone else could be aligned by holding it as to develop confidence and faith in myself and the path. 
to experience pleasantness, bliss, or concentration. Maybe a psychic experience (laughs) could be reframed as to recognize pleasantness, bliss, and concentration when they arise without attachment. Wholesome, pleasant. To impress the teacher, get recognized as special could be held as to develop my potential in order to serve others. To have my ego, self-sense, and or personality disappear could be reframed as to recognize the true not-self nature of my being. To experience something from a previous retreat or sitting could be to let go of all expectations, seeing the unique truth of each moment. To not experience something from a previous retreat could be reframed as to let go of all expectations, seeing the unique truth of each moment. So there's, there's a way we can take these things that, that seem to be disparate or pulling us in a different kind of direction or seem to be this uh, side agenda that's competitive or maybe even given priority over the simplicity of attending to things in the immediate and actually reframe it and tap it back into the center of the practice as a legitimate aspiration, a legitimate practice object. So when these things are happening, there's the reframe, that's the reframing opportunity. And then there's the actual practicing with them when they arise with renunciation and resolve where you include them when they're present in practice, whether you've reframed them or not, but you include them when they're present in practice, when they arrive, just like other things, not special. Just like other things, not special. If it's predominant, you work with it. You make them conscious. You bring mindfulness to them in the same way you would to the breath or to a sound. You know, See them as a desire or a longing. See them as a sadness. See them as whatever they are in real time. See them as a uh, manifestation of compassion. Notice if there's any attachment to them or any desire to like do them, to actually turn everything to making something related to them happen in real time. So the test is, you know, you're in skillful relationship with these when you've noticed that they've become goals and not objects of awareness. Which is another way of saying you start to notice when they're out of and not in the meditative process. Right? So what you want to want to find a way to do is to bring them into the meditative process. So you're functioning in in an integrated kind of way in relationship to this particular kind of material as well as other things, right? You've got one thing going on while you're here as much as you can. And, you know, part of it would be you would apply the same practice instructions to them. You know, you'd see the arising of, of these desires or these goals or these agendas as meditation objects. And then you'd use the, the standard practice instructions, recognition and acceptance and investigation and non-attachment, looking at things like thoughts and emotions and Vedana, the feeling tone, and body sensations. And, the, and there's one other option too that w- that's open to you in, in relationship to, to, to these kinds of things. And that would be you could observe closely when you attempt to med- meditate from these perspectives 
and allow the feedback to correct the kind of effort that you're making. So, you know, see what happens when you get, the mind gets really involved and um, entangled with, you know, like trying to make a particular state happen right now or, you know, try to f- trying to figure out some particular psychological loop in its genesis right now or, you know, trying to do a personality reconstruction <laughs> right now <laughs> and just you know, kind of like see, see what, what's that, what that is like, how that, how that feels, whether mindfulness can actually be sustained in that process or, or whether that's actually an open door to more suffering in real time because of the fragmentation that, that's part of that, making that particular effort. It, it took me quite a while before I started to realize that uh, the Dharma is medicine. It's a kind of universal medicine. It's, it's good for uh, everything at the, right, at the right dose, at the right time, applied in the, the right way. Some of the things that I really thought I would get or wanted to get at the beginning of practice eventually came to uh, take place, but not in the way that I expected at all. That was a very interesting learning. That the whole process, this whole process is very much a spiral kind of path. It's not linear, not at all. You know, if it's the Eightfold Path, it's not uh, a sidewalk, you know. It's over the river and through the woods and across deserts and through valleys and has many unusual and unexpected occurrences. And part of the arising of faith is learning to trust the arising experience and learning to give your full weight to the process of being present and trusting that it's onward leading and that it is going someplace, even if you can't say exactly where and how. So the the paradox, or one of the paradoxes of the process is that it does in fact bring healing on many different levels of the body, of the mind, of the psyche, And it it does it almost as a byproduct. So there's a certain kind of way in the mind learning to settle, learning to clarify, accepting, accepting immediate experience, finding a balanced, equanimous relationship to it, not being afraid of our own content, learning how to meet the arising of internal suffering with compassion instead of self-judgment, invites an integration of the whole being. In the same kind of way, learning to attend to the sensations of the body in real time in an accepting, loving way without making demands on the body to feel a certain way or to look a certain way, to be a certain way, to not have an ache, to not have a pain. The mind that can open to the existence of the body and the sensations of the body in real time and bring love to the body is setting the cause and conditions for the body to have support in its health. A mind that starts to recognize its own reactivity, whether it's to withdraw from conflict or to attack in conflict or to grasp at what's pleasant to try to control situations and starts to learn to see that and work with it in real time 
with wisdom and some kind of balance. Sets the stage for better and clearer, more loving interactions with other people. Sets the stage for greater relational health. So these are all some of the additional benefits, you could say, from practice. In addition to the cleansing of the mind of the suffering from the defilements and the arising of deep wisdom that liberates the heart. So my suggestion would be you kind of go for the big package, go for the big package, go for the potential benefit of the full ride and let the other things that are part of our natural human desires find their, their place within that. Finding a way to, to integrate those very natural things that we wish to have. So I would wish for you all the discernment and the faith to make the commitment to trust in something that you don't know. May your practice open in faith and may you bloom in the many ways which open your heart. May the merit of our practice be for our own benefit and for that of all beings without exception. (laughs) 